What's up, Lions? For as little as $5 a month, you can help this show to grow while also getting access to our exclusive Pride content, which includes shows like Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, Special Interviews, Lions of Liberty Roundtables, and much, much more. So check that out. Help us grow at lionsofliberty.com forward slash support. Welcome to Electric Liberty Land here on the Lions of Liberty podcast, your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty with your host, Brian McWilliams. Hello out there in Liberty Land, everybody. Welcome to episode number 64 of Electric Liberty Land, your favorite Wednesday podcast hosted by me. So today, I'm going to do a little uh, little breakdown for you of the Bernie Sanders Inequity Town Hall that he hosted, or I think it was called technically Inequity in America. And uh, <laughs> oh boy, I mean, I, it was about an hour and a half long. I'm not going to submit you guys to all of that because it would just be too painful. But let me just tell you. It was not easy to listen to all of that hoopla, all of that, them clap traps of flat traving, especially when Michael Moore's on the panel. God, ah, uh. let me just tell you before I get into it, Michael Moore has to be one of the dumbest individuals on the face of the planet. I mean, if you thought Bernie Sanders was dumb, if you thought he was economic illiterate, it, you should just hear some of the stuff I'm going to play for you from Michael Moore. And, and I don't want to play it all. I'll play a little clip here and there. Talk about just a rambling buffoon who knows apparently zero about anything other than that he doesn't like Donald Trump. I mean, that's what this all came down to. So we're going to get into that today. I'm also going to do a little uh, little talking, a little squawking about the new China social currency that they're using now. You know, this uh, currency, which they're basically observing what's going on in the populace, and they can use it to bar you from trains and bar you from flying. So that's, that sound lovely. But of course, before we do any of that, let me just tell you where you can find all the show notes, including the unabridged version of the Bernie Sanders Inequity in America video. And that, of course, is at lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL64 for all your liberty loving needs. And of course, you can also go there to support the podcast, help us get to Porkfest, which you know we are a going to. And uh, you can get some other links to. Maybe a candidate named Dale Kearns you're going to hear a little bit more about later in the show. Now then, let me get into this. Let me let me crack my fingers, although I can't crack my left pinky because I sprained it when I was drunk on St. Patty's Day. But let me crack the rest of these ah, fingers and get deep into this whole Bernie Sanders thing. No, wait, you know what? Before I do that, in the midst of all this knuckle cracking, I forgot to tell you, we're doing a big meetup here in Los Angeles. For those of you who are in L.A., within the, the sound of my voice... In the L.A. region, in the San Diego region, maybe even up north in the Sacramento region. Come on over, because we're doing a big old meetup. It's going to be me. It's going to be Mark. It's going to be the Jason Stapleton pod. Well, Jason Stapleton, at least. I don't know if he's bringing his new, uh, his new assistant, but or his new producer with him. And Dave Smith's going to be in town. So it's going to be a whole shindig, guys. We're going to get together. Maybe we'll do a little podcast, and I don't know. We'll see. We're going to answer some questions. We're going to drink some drinks. We're going to shoot the shit. It's going to be fantastic. And you don't want to miss it because God damn it. Who knows when it'll ever happen again. So 
Be sure to visit the show notes for that as well, because I do have a link there where you can RSVP for the event. Get yourself an Evite, or not Evite, excuse me, Eventbrite ticket for it. Make sure you show up there, because it's going to be a hoot nanny. All right, now let's get into the Bernie Sanders stuff. All right, so first things first, let's get into the, who's going to be on this panel? So, director Michael Moore. I'm sure I don't need to go into too much detail describing. Senator Elizabeth Warren, otherwise known as Pocahontas, if you are uh, buying into the Trump moniker that's been assigned, even though she refuses to take any DNA test that would show whether or not she actually is Native American, which, of course, she has claimed several times. And economist, and I, <laughs> I put quotation marks around that, but economist, this guy named Derek Hamilton, who I've uh, never heard of in my life. And they're going to have some special guests during this, this town hall meeting event, which looked at, mm, I'd say, somewhere between 50 and 70 people in the audience, which I was a little surprised by because you think it would pull a lot more people uh, with those names attached. Oh, and... Anna Kasparian of the Young Turks is involved with this. Young Turks was like a, a sponsor, partial, uh, partially involved in this, putting together, I think, some of the videos. And so she was involved. So you know right off the bat that it's going to be a lowbrow affair <laughs> because any of the Anna Kasparians involved that I always uh, consider very, very suspect. A lot of, uh, a lot of tugging heartstring videos were put together during this whole intro that uh, she, had, she had done a little segue into. A lot of people, examples of poor people being a... Uh, inequality in America panel or town hall as it was. So it's a lot of videos of people saying they can't make ends meet, which, hey, we all want them to make ends meet, right? But I don't know these people's circumstances. <laughs> so we see a bunch of videos about that, about how, ah, the damn rich and uh, woe is the poor, as you would imagine. And we go around after this video plays, Bernie Sanders goes around introducing people. And I do mention the Pocahontas thing because when he introduced Elizabeth Warren, she went, woohoo, which I thought was a little too close to Wahoo, like the Indian chief of the Cleveland Indians, who is no longer welcome in that stadium because they are no longer allowed to use his stately face (laughs) due to uh, cultural appropriation slash racism, alleged. So I thought it was kind of funny that she did uh, say something a little bit close to a Native American war cry as the cop cars drive by my apartment, surely on their way to shoot someone's dog, as they love to do. So it gets into it. Basically, they all just kind of get into the whole, oh, you know, there's a big economy inequality thing. Uh, Warren goes off on a little tangent to start off with about how she was a waitress and making $50 a week and able to go to a community college for that much money. Now, granted, this is back in like, you know, 1940 or whatever it was. But she's able to do all that. And that's why, you know, we need that. And we can't have, nobody can get an, a, an education for $50 a week anymore, a real education, which you could do something with. Now, granted, I am highly, highly suspect, even more suspect of her claim that she was able to somehow get a full education on $50 a week because number one, you can't graduate from a community college. Number two, uh, even if you're in a community college, you're basically getting intro courses to go on to another university. You would have had to get a scholarship. If you're only making $50 a week, you would have had to do something additional. So this story from the start, it sounds like complete bullshit to me. Anyway, (laughs) so she goes on and on about that and how, uh, you know, we need to invest more in education as if there was more money to go around it as if more education was spent then than now, by the way, 
It's like she's positioning it as though when she was a waitress going to this community college, we had, as Americans, put so much more money into our school infrastructure. No, absolutely untrue. America puts way more money now into infrastructure. First off, the Department of Education probably wasn't even in existence then. I believe the Department of Education came into existence in 1960. I should probably stop to Google that, and I will. And dot, 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 I was wrong. It was actually created in 1979. So even later... So unless, unless Elizabeth Warren has really aged badly <laughs> and, uh, and she have to happen to be uh, in, in college in the 80s, which uh, I highly doubt, then she was, in fact, uh, around before the Department of Education was created. So if anything, her local government had created that apart from the federal government, and uh, in which case, hey, man, I mean, if the state wants to do that, the state wants to do that. I'm still not for public education funding. However... Much different than what they're advocating for today, which is that everybody gets free college and the federal government pays for all that coming out of taxes, which I think is absolutely atrocious. And I'll get more into that a little bit later. So anyway, just to make the point, Elizabeth Warren's comments about how we need to invest more in it because we spent more than complete horseshit, nothing to do with anything. Now then, moving on. Derek Hamilton gets introduced. He's talking about natural disasters affecting the poor in America more, which I suppose is true because they probably don't have the insurance, etc. But he does make a, uh, a good point during his introduction about those having a tougher time that were previously incarcerated. If you know, if you listen to anything to Felony Friday, John Odermant's fantastic show that runs here. Did I say Odermant? John Odermatt's fantastic show that runs every Friday here on Lions of Liberty then you know just how difficult it is for people that have been incarcerated to get jobs, to get a fair shake, especially when so often they are incarcerated for complete jokes of a crime, including smoking marijuana. Uh, So anyway, they start off by bringing in their first guest. They played a little video, and then they bring in this woman named Catherine Flowers, and she's a black woman out of Alabama and the founder of the Alabama Center for Rural Enterprise. Now, You'd think with a name like that, she might have some background in economics or being an entrepreneur or business of some sort, that she's done anything whatsoever that would be in the business field. But it turns out she actually is from the teaching field. She was a teacher, I believe an elementary school or high school teacher, uh, not sure exactly which. And uh, so, you know, really doesn't know what the hell she's talking about and is coming from a very status point of view. So she goes on, (laughs) I'm just going to play this. But uh, she goes on to talk a little bit about people living in trailer homes above sewage. And uh, anyway, it gets a little confusing. Let me play a little clip from that for you. What I've seen since I've returned to the area, because I grew up in Lowndes County, Alabama, I've seen raw sewage underneath mobile homes. I have seen people uh, invest in on-site septic systems that they are told by the state health department to purchase and is running back into their homes. We have actually seen people, uh, we did a study with Baylor's National School of Tropical Medicine where we found evidence of tropical parasites, including hookworm, in Lowndes County. And that is, that is just an atrocity that at this particular time in our history, when we have these wealthy people, that we allow this kind of thing to take place here in the United States of America. Okay, so what exactly does this have to do with income inequality? I mean, this, this, the inequality in America, so the haves and have-nots is coming down to sewage. And you installed a septic tank 
in your garage and it's backing up into your house, which means, you know, you probably didn't install it right or you didn't pay somebody to install it right uh, or you're just an idiot. And now they're saying that, well, we've got these rich people. Why do poor people have uh, shitty sewage systems? And Bernie Sanders weighs in, and I, and I don't want to play too much of this content, but they weigh in basically saying, well, why, why don't the companies come? You know, because these people, they don't want to have the sewage in here because there's no tax base. So they, you know, they don't want to have the sewage infrastructure for the state to build it because there's no taxes to pay for the sewers. And you go, okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. If there's no taxes to pay for it, then they shouldn't put it in. If there's not enough people there to warrant a functioning sewer system, then why would you pay for one? And nobody brings up the fact that these people don't have to live there. I mean, I'm sorry, you can move. If you have almost nothing, right? If you're living in a sewage-filled shack, it doesn't seem like you're giving up too much to me to say, hey, why don't we move to a different town that happens to have running water and, uh, and a toilet that doesn't back up into the kitchen when we flush the toilet? And they're making this point like, well, businesses don't want to come here because there's no sewage. No shit. Pardon the pun. Or too much shit <laughs> to double down on the pun. Of course they don't. Why is that the fault of the of the rich? I, I don't I don't understand how this has anything to do with inequality or income inequality when it comes to American society. You have the opportunity to move. American society is not built upon the concept that everyone everywhere has all access to all things all at once in the exact same way. If you live in rural nowhere Alabama, you do not have access to the same services that you would in a city, in an urban center. And to expect as much is idiotic. And the people that, in fact, do have running sewage in rural parts, you know what they did? They went and made it happen themselves. They built the city, they attracted people in there, they started a business, or they dug it out and they started it up themselves. They didn't sit back and accept the state telling them to do a septic tank, or they didn't expect the state to come in and do it for them. And this is where, if this one's so concerned, why don't you talk to a private charity? Why don't you t- go talk to a big sewage company and say, hey, this will make a great PR story for you. Why don't you put in some basic sewage in this town that's so downtrodden, and then you can use it for all your PR, uh, PR materials. Corporate responsibility is huge. You can now use it. Is saying she, t- she pipes in and says, oh, you know what? The government has a responsibility to these people. Well, <laughs> I guess you could argue that If they're paying their taxes, sure, the government has a responsibility for the amount of taxes they're paying. But what do those taxes add up to? It doesn't seem like it's enough to have a sewage system put in there. And as much as I hate government, and I think that we should hold government incredibly accountable, especially when it does take in so much money, I don't expect government to automatically come to me if I choose some god-awful middle-of-nowhere place to set up shop. I don't expect the government to trek their asses out there and set me up with all the services. I don't expect them to put telephone poles in. I don't expect them to run roads out to me. I don't expect them to put sewage systems into me. Because that doesn't make sense. The cost, the astronomical cost of catering to people who want to live in the middle of nowhere doesn't counter in to what the government has to do. I mean, there's no way we could afford it. When you choose to live out in the middle of nowhere, you choose to do so uh, so as a as a, a an active optioning out of everyday society. Now, like I said, these people can move out of this place. They don't have to stay there. I understand 
if people don't have say, oh, well, they, you know, this woman doesn't have a car to go out of there. Well, save up, get a ride. Maybe to get a ride. I would just take a bus. You can't save up for a taxi. You can't, you can't borrow a car. You can't have somebody drive you to a bus station. I mean, please. It's just, it just doesn't make any sense. You can actively leave. People have escaped. I mean, for Christ's sake, people escape from terrible circumstances in other countries. People come from fucking Mexico crawling through the desert to get here and then make a life for themselves. And you're telling me that these people who live in America can't get out of a shitty town that doesn't have any sewage. Get right the fuck out. Okay, let's move on. So I'm not going to pull a clip from this because this United Auto Workers vice president woman had absolutely nothing to say of value. But, of course, half of this town hall was all of these people harping on the death of unions and how, oh my God, we can't believe that people just don't love union workers so much. So they bring in this VP of the United Auto, uh, excuse me, United Auto Workers Union. A, a fucking union boss. By the way, who could be more corrupt? Who could embody inequality in America than a goddamn union boss who comes in and has no qualms with telling Americans that unions are the way to go and that corporations are evil and that you have to jail? You know, we have to support our unions. Meanwhile, the unions go and beat the shit out of scabs. They had legal rights to, to, to like petition people and stand in front of businesses and fuck with people that are going in and out of there <laughs> until it was that was repealed, thank God. But they, they were put into place as strong arm, completely corrupt organizations that would get in the way of people trying to work that were, in fact, on the poverty end of this of the cycle. The union workers had all the benefits. Once once they got in there, they were now the power. They were now the rich and powerful people. And no one wants to admit this. No no one wants to bring this up during this inequality town hall that's happening. That the union bosses make more money than all the people in the audience combined. That the people that are just basically trying to pay their bills, trying to feed their families, can't get through the fucking picket lines. And if they do, they're called scabs and they blow up their cars and they beat the shit out of them in the streets when they leave. But no, no, no. Unions are great, guys. Yeah, let's let's go all unions. So this chick comes in and sits down and she goes, well, you know, it's just the lack of unionism. For the wealthy is the cause of wealth inequality, you know, and she she talks about the, the one third of manufacturing workers are subsidized, right? She doesn't say how, which is probably by the government to encourage minority or disability or disability payments, because a lot of union workers, you know, if you're doing manufacturing jobs, there's a lot of chance that you could get hurt there, get on uh, disability payments. Maybe you're encouraging people to hire uh, minority workers, encourage people to hire uh, people with disabilities. I'm just saying they don't tell you how. These people are subsidized, or in what way they're subsidized, if it's medical, if it's physical, if it's mental, maybe they're depressed. You know, this is, it's such a, a horseshit stat. And then she's, she's complaining that they are not paying what they used to be paid. She's crying because the union has, has lost money and lost, lost work to Mexico because these companies could pay $3 an hour instead of the $30 an hour that union workers get. Uh, and no shit. No shit. Why should they be forced to stay here? And that was her conclusion, by the way. And Bernie Sanders supports that. They all support it. We need to force companies to stay here and work here. That's great. That's what everybody wants. America, the land of opportunity where you're held 
prisoner if you want to start a company and force to use American labor because these unions have ruined the American labor force to the point where they can't afford to stay here anymore and, and sell their products at a reasonable cost. And nobody brings up or acknowledges that by forcing these high wages on manufacturing companies that basically just get passed along to the consumer, that we're, again, hurting the poorest individuals out there. The rich, they can pay a premium for a car because American workers are getting paid $30 an hour with full pensions and full benefits and all this other shit. They can afford to pay that. You know who can't afford a 30% increase in the cost of their car? The poor. <laughs> no, this is this is lost on everybody now. Okay, everybody on this panel, nobody wants to bring that up. All these super smart people talking about income inequality. And by the way, can we get one person that would have argued anything sort of reasonable during this town hall? Of course not. No, not on Bernie Sanders' watch. No cognitive dissonance. Anyway. Elizabeth Warren later on did have a, a decent point just talking about how wages have flattened out compared to the top 10% who are getting the money first, especially from the bank bailouts and corporate cronyism, which, of course, is a solid point, and also inflation. And that's a real point. Good job, Elizabeth. But she doesn't want to admit that it's not, it's not just due to blatant greed from the corporations. Well, it's also due to the government. It's due to the bailouts. It's due to the Fed being able to print money to the tune of trillions of dollars, and then lend it directly to the financial institutions to bail them out or to give them more liquidity so they can, in turn, lend the money out. But of course, they're not getting hit with the inflation like the rest of us are. They're getting that nice new money first before it gets out into the world, before the cost of everything else gets pushed up. So of course, yes, I agree with you, Elizabeth. It's not fair. But that is crony capitalism, and that is facilitated by government, which you love so much. This is the same thing that Bernie Sanders refuses to acknowledge. He wants to increase the size of government to take care of everything. But meanwhile, all of the inequality that is systematic in our society has to do with the government and its influence on everything. Like I said, no cognitive dissonance there, though. All right, let's get to something a little bit funny again. Uh, like I said, Michael Moore was such a goddamn big fat baby joke clown that I got to play this. I don't even I don't even know what it was. Is that none of his points made any sense during this entire town hall. Half of it was him talking about making movies and uh and and patting himself on the back and stroking his ego. Half of it was railing against Trump. And in between, I guess let's say 49.5% and 49.5% on either, either side was this 1% bizarro world story about golf. When they took over the factories in the middle of winter in Flint. And, and we, that's where the middle class really began, began with those strikes. And it allowed working people who didn't have an education to have a decent life, to be able to send the kids to college, to, have the, to be able to do these things. And this has been ripped from people. And I've been waiting, Bernie, for the moment. And I think it is coming. And it's so crazy, the rich right now, the greed, the level of greed that they think that, that, that people are not going to be at the gates. You can only build so many gated communities. When people are eventually going to say enough. You know, it's one thing if you've always been poor and you've never had the little things that they give the middle class to make us think that we're, you know, <laughs> part of them. You know, in Flint, back in the, after these strikes in the 40s and 50s, 
the GM executive said, we need to build golf courses next to each of the factories. <laughs> so there's a golf course by each of the factories in Flint, you know, within a mile or so. And all, and they, because they thought, give them some of the things that the rich have, and they'll, this will placate them, and they'll think that they're rich. And so all of our dads learned to play golf, you know, <laughs> and because it was an eight hour day back then, they got out of work at three o'clock, and they go play nine holes of golf. And what happened, and you know this is being down there part of the union, that people, people stopped going to the union meetings. People started thinking that, you know, started voting for the rich man's candidates. Yep, if you build it, they will come. It's the field of golf dreams, thanks to Michael Moore. Which, by the way, first off, unions did not create the goddamn middle class. The, re- the rollback of regulations really created the middle class. If we're talking about World War II and uh, the downfall of FDR and extending the Great Depression, rolling back all that government regulation and decreasing the size of government, giving people a chance to thrive, giving uh, companies a chance to flourish in the economy without the government stomping the shit out of them, that's what created the middle class. But no, it's of course, oh, it's the, yeah, the, the, the auto unions striking. That's what really did it, according to Michael Moore. Never mind the opportunity created from the companies that actually made the cars Never mind the innovation, never mind the entrepreneurship involved there, never mind the manufacturing that came through, <laughs> never mind all that, never mind all of that coming together. No, no. It's auto unions. Boom. Middle class. It's just that easy, guys. And just as easy to defeat the middle class. Golfing, guys, took out the middle class. <laughs> Tiger Woods is the great oppressor of the current times. He has been so good at golf for so long. That's you, you see that? Downfall of the middle class corresponds exactly when Tiger Woods was dominating golf so much. It's all coming together. And now that he's not so good anymore, our economy's recovering. Because nobody gives a shit about golf. Maybe Michael Moore's on to something. But let me tell you guys, I want you to get on to something. And it's a little something called Liberty with a little someone called Dale Kearns. My name is Dale Kearns, and I'm running for United States Senate in Pennsylvania as a libertarian. I'm a concerned citizen who has had enough. I work as a project manager for an electrical contractor in southeastern Pennsylvania. There I manage large commercial and industrial projects. I'm a husband and a father of two energetic little girls. I'm running to advocate for a society where my girls have more liberty, not less. Will you support our campaign? Unlike my competitors, I'm not a career politician. I don't have millionaire and billionaire donors. I'm running for Senate in Pennsylvania because I want to take the message to Washington that we want government out of our lives. Will you let me be your voice? Let me be the voice that says we will not walk quietly down the road to serfdom. The voice that says we need free market solutions. The voice that says we need to end the failed war on drugs. The voice who will fight for the forgotten man, non-violent offenders wasting away in prison, and addicts who are afraid to speak up and seek the help they need. We are seeking members for our campaign team. I encourage you to apply. We need donations to help us spread the message of liberty across the state. We can go on hoping for liberty to happen, or we can fight together. I hope you choose the latter and join me today. Find out more at DaleKearns.com. Paid for by Dale Kearns for Office. All right, we are back with Electric Liberty Land, episode 64. You can find all the show notes for today's episode at lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL64, including, as I said, the unabridged version of this Bernie Sanders town hall. So let's bring it back in with Derek Hamilton talking about 
the minimum wage and people making under a certain amount of money an hour and his basic thoughts uh, on wealth, which are, are deep. 45% of homeless individuals work. Say that again. I want everybody to hear that. Actually, I'm slightly off. 44% of homeless individuals work. Yeah. But obviously don't earn enough to get themselves out of their, their situation so that they can have decent housing. 40% of workers are in contingent, insecure jobs as, de as defined by the General Accounting Office. 44% of workers earn below $15 an hour. So, so that's the context in which we're in. But I'm going to shift gears a little bit and say that if we really are talking about a middle class and economic security, economic security, we need to talk about wealth. And if we look at wealth, we know wealth is both the beginning and the end of economic insecurity or security. Guys, wealth is the most important thing in being economically secure or insecure. Somebody give this man a second position at the university because he has cracked the code. <laughs> the hell? Thanks. Wait, deep thoughts, Jack Handy. Hey, man, if you uh, drop your keys in some lava, forget them because they're gone. Thanks, Derek. Jesus Christ. Idiotic. Now, the statement about homeless working, again, this is another statistic where I am sure homeless people work. Now, the question is, how many of the homeless people that are, are working or not working, how many of them have mental issues, how many of them have addictive uh, substance issues, and what ways in which do they come into these circumstances? Those are questions we don't know the answers to. We also don't know how many days a week they're working. We don't know if they're working purely to fund a substance uh, abuse problem. In which case, probably it would be a lot better to have things like places they could go to get heroin needles, get help, or have uh, places that they can go in which they could have some voluntary charities to help them out with free food, free clothes, free housing, getting back on their feet, work programs. A lot of these homeless might be former felons. They might be former uh, drug abusers that were thrown out of the street or thrown out of uh, hospitals for their use. They might have been put in jail for their use and criminalized, and thus they couldn't get a job when they came back out. There's a lot of things that we just don't know the answers to. I only bring that up because as libertarians, we don't want to sound too cold to this. We don't want to say, well, who cares about the homeless? Clearly, we care about the homeless. My problem is I don't know any of the circumstances that led to these people being homeless. I just know that from a systematic point of view, a lot of what has to do with the war on drugs, a lot of what has to do with the way policing and sentencing are handled have to do with homeless issues as well as Overregulation of housing, which leads to people not being able to afford housing in places like lovely Los Angeles, where I currently live, and of course, where Jason Stapleton has recently moved to. Ah, anyway, getting that off of my chest, because I'm going to come back to the housing thing a little later, because old Lizzie Warden brings it up and uh, just pisses me off when she does. So let's address his statement, though. This is something that really bugged the living shit out of me, because Derek says, well, you know... 40% of people working are making under $15 an hour. Which, you know, Bernie Sanders has him say it again because it's so powerful. So says Bernie Sanders and, uh, and Derek. You know what took me about 30 seconds to debunk? That stupid crap. Because while it's not untrue that these people are making under $15 an hour, uh, at least from my basic math, here's what it actually breaks down to. So in the 2010 census, 24% of the working population was under 18. 
Now, if you're under 18 and you're working, you probably shouldn't be making more than $15 an hour. I'd argue you probably shouldn't be making more than $10 an hour. Because if you're under 18 and working, odds are you're not supporting yourself, you're not supporting your family, odds are it's a transitional job, you're saving up money for college, you're saving up money to go get uh, get blown in a parking lot and drink some Pat's Blue Ribbon or some hams, which uh, I've read a lot of good things about hams, people, I gotta try it, it's winning all these contests for most drinkable cheap beer, maybe we'll try it at Porkfest. So anyway, if you're under 18 it makes a lot of sense that you're not making that much. So that's 24% of that 40% figure. Let's just cross that out right now, okay? So let's see, what about the other 16%? Well, how about we add in college students working part-time? Because if you're going to college, you're over 18. So how about college students that are working part-time while they're in school? Again, to get some extra scratch. Maybe they are paying their way through school, although the recent studies that I read said that a lot of them were not. In fact, they were either on student loans or their parents were paying for it. But a lot of kids were simply working during their time to make extra cash on the side. So this recent poll said 70% were working some sort of job while in school. So while I don't have an actual number of population on that, I got to think that's pretty high. Probably a few million people out there doing that. So let's add in, let's let's say 10% of the population is, is uh, coming from these college kids that are still working, that are putting in their time, but they're not making all that much money. Still, they're putting in some time. Maybe they're working 30 hours a week, getting paid $11, $12 an hour. Maybe they're waiters, whatever, working at the poppy, the poppy corn theater. And then we haven't even talked about the other people that are working at the lower end pay scale, the people that simply don't have the skills to be paid more than $15 an hour. Let's say the people that are mentally handicapped or let's say the elderly that are, t- that are either haven't even managed their funds that well. So maybe they're working a few hours a week just to keep it going. Maybe they're like my mom and they're just bored out of their gourds. So they're working at an old folks home, you know, putting in a little time just to get a little extra scratch. But really, they're doing it just to kill the time of the day because they go stir crazy otherwise. What about those people? What about the people that are just simply goobers? There's a lot of goobers out there. I mean, they don't even have to be disabled or elderly. What if they're just simply content sucking off the teat of America, working a little part-time job, getting subsidized another way? Or maybe they don't even, maybe they're not even getting subsidized. Maybe they just live in a place that's incredibly cheap to live. I mean, God, you go out to Modesto, California, you can live off $11 a day working at Carl's Jr., So were we saying that this 40% of the people making under $15 is some sort of crime against humanity? No. They're making it out like it's some attack on the middle class. Let me tell you something. The middle class did not get where it was on working at Carl's Jr. That's basically a starter job. That's a stepping stone. That's a job to show that you're competent. That's a job to show that you can actually be trusted with the minimal amount of responsibility that it takes to function in the workplace. And then after you've proven yourself, you move on to something bigger and better. You're not supposed to stay working this job forever. And in fact, I've argued this before and I'll argue it again by making a quote unquote living wage. All you're doing is trapping people in that existence. Congratulations. You now have a job, which you can live at for the rest of your life without in theory, So they say, 
government assistance. That existence will subsist of staying in the exact same economic strata, never getting ahead, never having opportunity to move ahead because you have now confined yourself to this one job which pays you your living wage. So you've essentially accepted a little stasis field that you put around yourself and you're happy to stay there content forever until you die of probably a coronary eating McDonald's fast food every day. So congratulations. Idiotic point. So this guy then later goes on to drop this little ditty. This is a quick one. We know that if you are a head of household and you're black and you graduated from college, your family's wealth position is lower than that of a white family where the head dropped out of high school. So this feeds into the narrative of can we simply work hard, study hard, and address inequality? The answer is no. Those things are important. Education is important in its own right. So when Senator Sanders proposes that we should have tuition-free public education, absolutely. But as, a, <laughs> as an end onto itself, we exaggerate the economic returns to education, particularly for marginalized groups. So you got to love that. The guy admits straight up that education's overrated, that he basically says, ah, you know, it doesn't really matter that much when in regards to economics, but still, oh, let's give everybody free education. Hey, it ain't his money, right? Meanwhile, that's, that stat he throws out there is pretty damning, uh, talking about black heads of household having less median income than white people that did not go to college. Now, the thing is, and I, read, I went and took a look at this study, and uh, I'll link to it as well so everybody else can see it. One of two studies I found, but this one is done in 2013. Median wealth by race and education. It had found that 51.3 thousand is what the median white household had. Meanwhile, the white family with a household leader who did not go to college, that was what they had, 51.3. Well, the median black family and Hispanic families with a college degree at a net worth of 25.9K for the black families, 41K for the Hispanic family. So that little detail, though, median wealth by race and education with this strong note in this study, a family's education level is defined by the education level of the head of its household is very important because what we're going to find is that I'm sure of this. I'm 100% sure of this. What we're going to find is that a lot of that income disparity is drawn from the fact that while the head of the household and the white households may not have gone to college, let's say the male, who in a traditional family would be considered the head of the household, his wife, Barry Melway, Barry Melway have, very well may have. And I would say with that kind of income disparity, probably did, in fact. Um, let's not to mention that there is a lot more families that stay intact within the white community and the Hispanic community compared to the black community. I would argue some of that is cultural, but a lot of it has come from that. A lot of that culture has come from the environment that's created by the government, which again falls back on the drug war, that again falls back on over policing of black neighborhoods, that again falls back on uh, people being basically having their families broken up because of the use of drugs or the use of uh, a plant that. We consider a drug, which really isn't a drug in most places anymore. And then those people being put in jail for 
anywhere from five, 10, 15 years to life, depending on how many times they've been caught with a little bit of pot in their pl- in their uh, pockets. So I think when you look at the black community and saying that, okay, if you go to college as a black man, you're just uniformly, uh, on average, you're going to have less, or not even just as a black man, as a head of a black household. So there's a lot of women that are also raising children and they're the head of their households. So I'd say disproportionate amounts of black women probably are in that position. But they go to college. Now they're still the head of the household. However, they got a later start in life because of the situation they've been placed in where they're raising kids on their own. That's a factor I'm sure that comes into play here. Point being, it's not what Derek is putting it forth as, as just simply, you know what? If you're a black dude, you go to college, you're going to make less than a white guy who didn't go to college. That's just not true. Uh, uniformly, that's not true. And if you're a business owner, it doesn't make any business sense to turn away a black man because you love being racist and you don't like black people in lieu of or in order to hire a white guy without an education to a job, which he's not qualified for or doesn't have the experience or education to do. It just doesn't make sense. And there's no way that on average, you're just going to say, well, if I'm hiring two people, I'm going to pay one $25,000 more than the other one. So there's a lot of things that are going into this study uh, or into these results that he is talking about. I'm not saying that all of them are necessarily right that lead to that kind of inequality. However, I do think that it's much more nuanced than he'd like you to believe. All right, let's do a little bit about Elizabeth Warren and on uh, on housing and wealth. And then I'm going to wrap it up by coming back to Derek with some final thoughts of his, and then we'll just finish up on that. I just want to pick up, though, on the point about, about wealth and systemic racism and just talk for one second about homeownership. And what homeownership means in America, it is the principal way that the middle class built wealth. That is the number one retirement plan in America was pay off your house and live on your social security. Uh, the way that you hand down wealth to the next generation, if you're lucky enough to be able to hold on to it, is you get that house paid off, grandma and grandpa die in it, and then you can sell it and the next generation will be wealthier. Families have been doing this for generations now in America. That is, white families have been doing this for generations. The impact of discrimination in housing in racially restrictive covenants, and then in redlining, and then its inverse that led up to the crash of 2008, targeting communities of color for the lousiest mortgages out there, and then when things started to go south, foreclosing much more aggressively in those same communities of after color. The crash. That's right, after, after the crash. So it's been one after another after another. Bull shit, Elizabeth. Bull shit. Those communities were not targeted during this financial crash. So let's just take a time out and go back a bit because I did a whole drunken, well, drunken bar talk uh, episode. I was sober, but the concept is I explained things in a way in which you could communicate with people while drunk at a bar. Looking at the whole financial crash, because it was talking about Dodd-Frank and the repeals and that kind of shit. So I did a whole episode on it. And let's be very clear here. The banks did not target black and minority communities because they just wanted to go out of their way to have shitty loans to people that couldn't be able to pay them. They were actually told by Bill Clinton's Urban Development Housing Authority to go and lower the standards for those people. They were enticed by the government and told that those loans would be backed by the feds, which they turned out to be. That's why they got the big bailouts. That's why Freddie Mae and Freddie Mac stepped in and bought up all that shit because these people were told to go after those communities. So if you want to blame somebody, 
Don't blame corporations. Don't say it's because of greed. Don't say it's because of racism. You can turn around and look to Bill Clinton and your motherfucking government because that's who caused this shit. That's who told them to go after those communities. That's who set these people up to fail. That's who's responsible. So Elizabeth Warren doesn't know what the fuck she's talking about. And then to say that they all, oh, they aggressively foreclosed on these people, eh, you know, bullshit. I'm sorry, but no. People all over the country got foreclosed on. Because you know what? If you just got foreclosed on a few little people in the minority, then you don't have a giant housing crash, do you? Nope, you need to have quite a few people closed on on their uh, on their mortgages and on their loans for that to happen. And I don't think just going after the four poor people that had the shitty loans like you're talking about that were very specifically targeted, only the poorest and the dumbest, I don't think them foreclosing or them being foreclosed upon on shitty loans for shitty houses is going to cause all of that crash just all at once. You need to have a pretty wide net thrown for that. And that's what happened. So again, this is all complete and total bullshit. So I just want to throw that in there. Now let's get back to Derek and his completely idiotic comments to wrap this whole thing up at the end of the broadcast. I'm skipping over about 20 minutes of content between Elizabeth's comments here. It just wasn't interesting enough. So here's Derek. I'm going to give you a list and then uh, they're, they're bold policies. The problems are bold and I think the problems need the, the solutions need to be bold. So we have vast wealth inequality in our country. Why don't we endow every child at birth with a, with a trust account so that when they become a young adult, they have some seed capital to purchase a home, to start a business, or have a debt-free college education? Right. Great idea. And I'm going to pop in. He talks for like four minutes straight. So I'm going to pop in. I had my thoughts and then add the clips here. But so he, wants to, he, so he wants to go in and give everybody in the country a trust fund. Every kid gets a trust fund. Okay, that's retarded. Number one, he's saying this is going to cost $80 billion. Are you on crack? The U.S. spends $1 trillion a year on welfare as it is. And that's according to the congressional budget offices. That's not from like, you know, there was some story that came out of people bashing Cato for finding it. This is from the CBO. $1 trillion a year on welfare spending, and that's not even counting Social Security and Medicare. That's on welfare programs. That's on uh, entitlement programs. So we're just going to give everybody how much money? What exactly do you consider a trust fund for seed money to start a business? Because you can't start a business on $200. Seed money to start a business or to go to college and not have to pay for it. What is that, $50,000 each? Because that's a lot of money, man. And there's no way in hell we are going to be able to pay for that. Okay, next thing. Um, We could talk about a federal job guarantee. Why don't we remove the threat of unemployment altogether? Why don't we eliminate working poverty altogether? Oh, I know. That's called socialism, dipshit. You know that thing that's failed miserably everywhere else that's been tried ever where you guarantee someone a job and then nobody ever tries to work because they're guaranteed a wage? We could federalize credit scores, for instance. Should we have something so determinant in people's lives left in the proprietary private sector that has different incentives? I don't know. seems to me like uh, companies wanting to know if you're good for credit or not seems pretty straightforward. I don't know why you'd put that in the hands of the government, which seems like the government could then fuck it up or fuck around with it to make sure that they could control your credit, control what assets you could access. Just like, let's, uh, let's like say mental health. 
if the government gets to decide who is considered sane or insane or what that mental health means, then they can dictate what you can do, what you can buy, what you can't buy, what rights you have, what rights you don't have, because it's an arbitrary decision. So by putting your credit score in the hands of the government, well, they can extend that into things like, say, social credit, like China just did. Another socialist slash communist country that we uh, look over at and we say, well, God knows we don't want that to happen here. But please, Derek, continue. Postal banking so that we ensure everybody has a, everybody has a bank account. Why would I want the government to be in charge of my money? Why would I want them to have possession of my money? Why are they, These people are the most brainwashed status. I mean, this guy is the most brainwashed status that I have ever seen in real life. He just wants the government to control every facet of your life from start to finish. Never mind, like I said, the government's to blame for a lot of the ills and the inequality that he is talking about. But no, let's turn it all over to the government, man. They know what's best. They're going to do what's right for us. Never mind that half the segregation in America was their fault. Never mind that the laws allowed for slavery to happen in this country for a very long time. Never mind that. The government, uh, that's all good. Why doesn't the EEOC proactively go out and audit firms that receive federal dollars to see if they're discriminating? Oh, I know. Here's why. Because number one, why would they proactively audit somebody that they don't think is doing anything wrong? Because that's a presumption of guilt. And if you're a business owner that happens to be working in the government, I don't think you should always have to be worried about the business being audited all the time to see if you're being racist or not when there's been no allegations against you for being racist. Meanwhile, now do you have to handle somebody to hang on your staff all the time to handle all of the race regulations that you're put through? Do you need a racial auditor to work for you 24-7? Do you need all sorts of red tape and all sorts of documents and all sorts of shit that's going to slow down and cost your business money and take that out of your pocket and put it into the pocket of the government to pay for all of this licensing and regulation? Never mind the lost costs of hours wasted on this idiotic bullshit. How about that? So that's a reason for you, Derek. We know we have a divided economy with, with the resources unevenly distributed. We also know that when we think about race, it becomes apartheid-like. So if we really want to address our race problem, I'm going to say something bold, but America needs to come to reckoning with this. We can address, we can redress inequality, and we have lots of programs to do so. But if we really want to address the race problem, there needs to be acknowledgement to go along with that redress. Senator Warren talked about ways in which, even beyond slavery, that we positioned one group of people better off to grow their assets where other people were denied access to that. So to really get beyond our race problem, when we're ready as a nation to come together, we need to come to grips with reparations. Yeah, raise your hand if you were shocked that Derek was going to get to that point at the end of this. I think we all saw that coming. Seems that people, uh, people like Derek inevitably do end at that conclusion. And the funny thing is, from a libertarian standpoint, that is not a conclusion that is out of bounds. In fact, a lot of what we believe in is based upon the base concept of reparations, wherein if somebody wrongs you, you are uh, ordered to give them reparations for whatever was damaged or taken. Whatever was lost and not just you, but if you do have surviving relatives, then yes, they would be on the hook for that as well. However, (laughs) there's a statute of limitations on these things. No one expects you to go and say to someone 200 years down the road that they owe you for labor that was performed and which you are owed 
that was that was done seven generations in the past, in which you have no recollection nor connection to any of those people. That's just wrong. Frankly, I feel like you don't know the economic situations of most of these people, and I highly doubt that you could go up and figure out some bizarre economic uh, voodoo machination to come up with a number that would make sense for reparations and go up to every white person that ever owned a slave if you can actually find the the uh, family trees to trace it back and demand that they give you $500, $1,000, And I expect that to have heavy ramifications on people. And I don't think that's going to even out the income inequality anyway. Unless you're going to take people's entire livelihoods away. And I I don't see that happening. I mean, granted it is happening in South Africa. There's a reason Derek mentions apartheid, which is just atrocious that they're doing that over there. But if you're going to come to a logical conclusion, this here's the other thing I can't wrap my head around saying, okay, you go, all right, you owe me because your family owned my family. But if we're going to do that, then Shouldn't you go back another generation and say, okay, well, they bought those people from the point of sale. The point of sale was other African tribes. So it's not just white people that are on the hook for this, which people don't want to don't want to acknowledge. But it's also the warring tribes in Africa. There was also tribes in Africa that just, you know, I mean, all over Cote d'Ivory. Those were slave traders. Those people bought and sold other black slaves to white people. They viewed them as colleagues. They wrote them letters. I mean, this was an active business trade. So where do you draw the line? Where do you say it stops? What is the statute of limitations reparations? Like I said, for, as a concept, I'm, I'm all for it. But in a realistic sense, it doesn't make any, any lick of logic to actually try to put into place. And I just get bothered to hell when people try to bring it up and make believe that it's going to solve all the world's ills. It seems like it's more of a, a gesture than anything. But that gesture can have severe economic ramifications depending on who the gesture is enforced upon. When you're looking at generations later, these white people are probably living out in the middle of fucking Mississippi, living hand to mouth. The exact people that Derek and Michael Moore and Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders despise, the people that voted for Trump, probably did so because they are, in fact, living pretty low on the hog, eating ramen noodles and trying to fix up their firebird, Joe Dirt style. Just dreaming one day they're going to get their Henny out of hock. You know, some pretty severe reactions that can happen from this kind of shit. All right, real quick thoughts, because I got to wrap this up. I want to get it in under an hour. So China has a social credit score that they're introducing. That is terrifying. They talked about it before. Now, they are positioning it as something where they're using it like, okay, you can be banned from trains and planes depending on if you're caught spitting or if you're caught uh, trying to drink on the subway or something like that, where it's considered a social faux pas. Now, the thing that they don't want to tell you about this, that's much more terrifying, is that they introduced this concept earlier and it didn't have anything to do with spitting on the train. What it actually had to do with was them monitoring your social media. And that's what the heart of this really is. But it's Chinese government monitoring your social media and monitoring your interactions in public to gauge your loyalty to the Chinese government. They then would use that loyalty to reward you or penalize you based upon what transition uh, or what transit services you could use, where you could travel within the country, what rights you would have compared to other people that had a better social store, score, etc. And not just that, but international travel. So you couldn't even escape China if your social credit score wasn't high enough. You're essentially trapped in that country for good. Good luck getting out. 
until you start jacking up your Twitter feed on uh, talking high about communism. That ties into the next topic I want to talk about because that's where it's going, this Aurelian nature of government oversight, which people like Derek, who the uh, view of the state as the overarching answer to all of our problems, that's what they don't understand is that this is insidious and this kind of oversight, this kind of uh, awareness of everything that their citizens are doing can be put into play like this and be, can be used to control your movement, to control the way that you express yourself. We talk about free speech and the importance of that where the government's concerned. In China, free speech is definitely restricted. You are limited from what you can see. You are limited from what you can say. And now they put that into force with this social credit score. Now, that is happening similarly in the UK in a legal matter because of their free speech laws. There's a comedian, and I use that term loosely, but there's a comedian named Count Dankula, who was a Scottish guy who has gotten in a severe amount of trouble over in the UK because he taught his daughter's dog to give a sig hail sign. Now, that is pointless and idiotic, I suppose, but there is something kind of funny about training your girlfriend's dog when you go up and go, hey, Henry, sig hail, and the dog gives a sig hail, to just be like, ha, 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 your dog's a racist. You know, that is funny. Or if we're doing Sean Connery, how do your dogs are racist? So, hey, it's dumb. It's funny. It's free speech. There's nothing that should be said about that. However, in the UK, there are hate speech laws in place that have made that illegal. So Count Dankula is now facing fucking jail time, if you can believe it, because he taught a dog how to do a stupid trick. And... It's one of those things where you go, all right, even if you're the most ardent defender of this kind of nonsense, even if you say, no, 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 this has to happen. You know, we need to protect people. We can't have people going around doing Nazi stuff. You got to know better because you have to see things like this happen and say, well, this is just taking it to the most ridiculous conclusion possible. And if this can happen to this goofball, what makes it think it won't happen to you for something equally stupid? Not to mention, this is a way the government can control what people can say and do. Because by labeling something hate speech, you make it illegal. If you can make saying something illegal, you can then make conversing freely illegal. And I tell people this all the time. Just because you don't like people saying Zig Hale or you don't like the Nazis doesn't mean that tomorrow something that you do like might be made illegal by the majority. Because that's what this is coming down to. That's where democracy falls apart. And that's why free speech has to be above the democratic process and untouchable. Because once there is a democratic majority in place, they can push through a law that says, well, you can't say that. And in fact, you can't say any of the things that we don't agree with. Now, while some of those things could be abhorrent, like the N-word or like Nazis, well, there might be some things that actually aren't so bad that have to be said that can be put out there. I'll use this example because it holds true once again, but when people did have slaves, the anti-slaveries, the, ab the abolitionists out there, they were fighting to get rid of slavery. They very easily could have faced a majority that said, hey, you know what? In fact, if you guys talk about abolishing the slaves, that's now considered hate speech because that's hateful towards white people. And if you talk about freeing slaves, that's an assault on our rights. So, in fact, we're going to arrest all of you that want to free the slaves because that's what can happen. That's why you have to protect free speech. 
because while you don't acknowledge it, while you think that you're always on the side of right, you might not be. Because you know what? The same assholes who had slaves back in the day, they also thought they were right. Funny how that works out. So free Count Dankula, everybody. That's going to wrap this episode up. So from me, Brian McWilliams, from the Lions of Liberty, I want to encourage you to visit our other shows. Mark Clare, Mondays, doing his in-depth interviews with the leaders of the libertarian movement. John Odermatt on Fridays, doing his Felony Friday thing, talking about the injustice in the criminal justice system. Follow us on Twitter, at Lions of Liberty. Follow me at Brian McWilliams. Support the show. We got all sorts of awesome content for our special pride group that can be found at lionsofliberty.com forward slash support. You can join that for as little as five bucks a month. And of course, guys, I want to encourage you, as I said, at the top of the show to come on out, find us in LA, say hello. And if you can't do that, come join us at pork fest where we will be doing a live libertarians and living rooms, drinking liquor show, which is going to be a hell of a thing. We're also going to be playing Eric July and backwards in basketball. That's going to be crazy. And on top of it all, we're just going to be hanging out, having a good old time. So we shall see, hopefully, most of you there. All right, that's going to do it. From Electric Liberty Land, guys, always remember to stay plugged in to Liberty.